This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. WVEZ is supported by Chicago Humanities, presenting live events with historians Doris Kearns Goodwin and John Meacham, comedian Reggie Watts and filmmaker Miranda July, and artists Hebrew Brantley and Amanda Williams in conversation, plus MSNBC chief correspondent Ali Velshi on small yet powerful acts of courage throughout history. Tickets for these events and more conversations on arts, culture, and current affairs at chicagohumanities.org. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Let's start this next conversation with 27 words that come up time and again in the debate over how to reduce violence in America. A well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That is the Second Amendment. But what did the framers mean by those words? And how do Republicans and Democrats interpret the amendment today? Here to break it down for us is Adam Winkler, law professor at the University of California at Los Angeles, and author of Gunfight, the Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America. Let's start with the amendment itself. It's very short, only two clauses, and it's not grammatically correct. That's right. It has so many commas in it. It's almost as if James Madison, the author of the amendment, had just discovered this wonderful new thing, the comma, and wanted to put it in there so many times. You know, the grammar geek in me goes nuts when I read it. It's just, it's bad. And it's confused generations of Americans. There's two primary views about the Second Amendment. One is that it protects an individual right to have firearms for personal protection. And the other view is that it only protects a right that's associated with state militia service. Uh, And indeed, the Second Amendment refers to militia service right there in the text of the amendment. So what did the militia mean to the founders and why was it so important to protect the militia? Well, the militia was very, very different from anything that we know today. Remember, back in the founding era, there was no standing army. There was no police force. There was really very little, if any, law enforcement. And so the militia was um, uh, basically the body of people who would be called to arms to defend the colony or the nascent state. Um, and to enforce the law when necessary. And it was comprised of ordinary people who would be uh, asked to go home, get their guns, and be ready to fight in an instant, like the Minutemen of Revolutionary War fame. Last week, we had uh, Indiana State Representative Jim Lucas on the show. He supports loosening gun laws in his state, and he described the Indiana Constitution and then pivoted to the Second Amendment. Let's listen to that. Indiana State Constitution is very clear on this right. Article 1, Section 32, the people shall have a right to bear arms for defense of themselves in the state. Um, No mention of a militia. I know that likes to be used as a distraction in the Second Amendment. So he's calling the mention of a militia in the Second Amendment a distraction. What do you make of that? I mean, well, certainly the amendment itself refers to the militia, so it shouldn't be a distraction. Uh, It's surprising to hear Um, someone who uh, swears allegiance to the Constitution and takes an oath to defend it, uh, to believe that text in the amendment means absolutely nothing. 
But regardless of what the text of the amendment says, you know, none of our constitutional provisions are really interpreted solely as the founders of the Constitution uh, envisioned those amendments. Uh, and the Second Amendment is no different. Americans have really come to believe that the Second Amendment does protect an individual right to bear arms. And many state constitutions, as your previous guest said, do protect an individual right to have firearms for personal protection. So regardless of the Second Amendment and regardless of any language about the militia, the right to bear arms is a longstanding and well-protected right in America. The Supreme Court's 2008 ruling in District of Columbia versus Heller, it created a before and after in common interpretations of the Second Amendment. Can you explain that? Well, before 2008, the Supreme Court had never issued an authoritative ruling saying that the Second Amendment uh, protected an individual right to bear arms. And the court had never struck down a gun control law in its over 200 year history. Um, and uh, now some and afterwards, the court in the Heller case did say it does protect an individual right and does did strike down a ban on handguns in Washington, D.C. And that's led to literally thousands of cases challenging any sort of gun laws that are on the books. The truth is, is actually most of the gun laws have survived judicial scrutiny in those years since. And I think it's fair to say that even before 2008, when the Heller decision came down, America had a serious gun problem and a serious problem with gun violence, regardless of judicial protection of gun rights. Let's go back to another snippet of the representative. Uh, last week, here's what he says to a question I asked about Americans who think that he's prioritizing gun rights over children's lives after the mass shooting at the school in Uvalde, Texas. Here it is. I'm prioritizing the right and the ability to defend oneself against somebody who will not be stopped by any law on the books. So does the Second Amendment protect an individual's right to self-defense? Well, that's certainly what the Supreme Court has said and what generations of Americans have believed the Second Amendment to provide. But I think it's important to move away from the dichotomy that uh, the representative that you had on earlier uh, in that previous episode uh, makes clear. Adding universal background checks or restricting access to the most dangerous weapons or raising the age to purchase a gun does not deny people, their law-abiding people, their right to defend themselves with a gun. We should remember that in this country, we say that states like California and New York have very restrictive gun laws, but they're only restrictive gun laws when compared to Texas and Mississippi. If you compare the gun laws of California and New York to the gun laws of the United Kingdom or France or Japan, uh, those countries would say California and New York have remarkably loose gun laws. They allow almost anyone to buy a gun and to stockpile as many firearms as they want. So it's important to recognize that we can have good and effective gun safety reform without uh, limiting people's ability to defend themselves with a firearm. Well, to that end, Representative Lucas of Indiana also said that laws don't deter people from committing crimes, but that additional guns could. So I wonder, as a legal expert, what you think about that? Well, it's absurd on its face. I mean, number one, if more guns made us safer, the United States, which has more guns per capita than any other Western industrialized nation, 
would be the safest country on earth. And yet we have the highest fatality rate of any country on earth. Uh, and uh, so more guns clearly do not make us safer. Uh, and number two, it's hard to credit those who say, that no laws work, that laws won't stop people from committing crimes when those same elected officials are busy passing laws left and right to restrict access to abortion. Well, if laws don't work, why are we passing laws to restrict abortion? Clearly, they think laws work in areas where they want the laws to work, but it refuse to support laws in areas that they find politically inconvenient. Why is it that you think the Second Amendment has become so divisive, Adam, and such a rallying cry? Well, the Second Amendment is divisive, but of course, we should recognize we're in a very divisive space in our country, right? We're divided on so many issues, and guns are just one of them. And part of the reason why guns are such a divisive issue is because they've really become closely associated with people's identities in America, especially in the gun rights movement. Um, there's people in the gun rights movement who just absolutely, absolutely oppose any legislation that will uh, impact or touch upon guns uh, because they think it's an attack on them, their values, their worldview, and uh, their country. I also think there's a fundamental divide in our country that is genuine. There are many Americans who are convinced that if we have more gun safety laws, we're going to have less crime. But there's a lot of people uh, who believe, contrary to a lot of evidence, uh, that uh, the answer to gun violence is more guns and more people having guns on the streets to protect them. And if you believe that that's the way the world works, it's very hard for you to support gun safety reform if you mm -hmm. think it's going to prevent people from defending themselves. I mean, something I said last week, you know, more guns equals more shootings, right? There's plenty of data to support that. Lots of data to support that. And for those who say that if we get rid of guns, you know, only criminals will have them. Uh, of course, there's many, many other countries that have gotten rid of guns and the criminals don't have them because they've been eliminated. But I don't think that's a realistic possibility for the United States right now. We have 400 million guns in America. We've tried to ban many small, easy to conceal items like drugs and alcohol in the past without much success. And uh, for good or ill, uh, a lot of Americans feel just as passionately about firearms as they ever did about guns or drugs. A majority of states across the country have preemption laws that protect the right to bear arms. These laws aren't required by the Constitution. So can you just explain the role that these buffer laws play? Well, preemption laws tend to work to limit the ability of cities to enact stronger gun restrictions than exist at the state level. And this is really important because there's a lot of cities that are sort of blue cities where support for gun safety reform is strong, but they're in red states. Take a place like Austin in Texas, where the citizens of Austin would like to have more restrictive gun laws. But the state of Texas has very loose gun laws and a preemption law that prevents places like Austin from enacting greater restrictions mm -hmm. on guns. It's important to note in this conversation that when the Second Amendment was actually written, it only applied to white men with property, right? And in fact, there were punishments for enslaved people or native people who had firearms. So is there some validity to the argument that guns have always been about controlling populations? 
Well, it's certainly the case. And I don't think that's the only reason why Americans have supported gun rights over the years, but it's certainly part of the story. Um, guns were an important tool used by white enslavers to keep people terrified and repressed. And guns were, and firearms were used uh, throughout American history to keep people as second-class citizens by denying them access to the ability to defend themselves. Um, so race has always played a very important role in shaping our law and gun laws in particular, because they're so associated with power and the ability to oppress someone else, uh, uh, race has clearly played a role in that space as well. Would you say that that's still the case today? I do think so, although I think it's very different than it once was. I don't think there's any big move afoot, for instance, today to deny access to guns by racial minorities. Um, uh, we don't see that dynamic, but we do see the dynamic that the NRA seems less interested in protecting black gun owners and that there's a lot of seemingly seeming overlap between gun rights supporters uh, and people who are harshly anti-immigration and sometimes racist. If you go to a gun show, you it's not unusual to see racist literature out there that's associated with white nationalism and otherwise. Again, that's not the entire story about guns, but we do see that as part of the gun rights community, unfortunately. You mentioned New York earlier. The Supreme Court's going to rule in a New York case that's going to decide whether people in that state who are seeking a license to carry a gun in public, whether they'll need to prove why they should be allowed to do so. What are the potential ramifications of that? Well, I think this big Supreme Court Second Amendment case is going to be a real um, groundbreaking case. The court is likely to say that New York's restrictions on concealed carry are unconstitutional and that New York and other states like California, Massachusetts, and others that have pretty heavy restrictions on concealed carry have to allow people to carry guns on city streets. So, uh, and so not only is this going to affect guns on the streets, but the court seems likely, given the rhetoric that we've seen from some of the justices, to say that other forms of gun safety reform are also unconstitutional or should be called into question. Things like restrictions on military style rifles or restrictions on high capacity magazines. Uh, we'll have to see what the details are of the Supreme Court's opinion. But a big fear among Supreme Court watchers is that the court is really going to supersize the Second Amendment and gun rights in America just at a time when we see increasing political support and mobilization for gun safety reform. That was Adam Winkler, law professor at UCLA. Thank you so much, Adam. That's it for today's Reset. And you can hear more every weekday afternoon by adding this podcast to your feed. And while you're there, please give us a rating. It really helps people find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you right back here tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.